Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Padre Gautuma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I hope you're all well and in a good place because we've three cracking true stories for you on this week's podcast, all told at different times on different themes. So let's get stuck in and our first story is from Fergal McGookin. He told it in the black box in September when the theme was gratitude and there are a few expletives, but don't worry, you won't need your smelling salts. So here I was, I had survived the first term of my postgraduate teaching placement relatively unscathed at least physically. I'm told the mental scars may heal in time. Okay, so I had made mistakes, which was understandable, indeed inevitable. I'd even made a fool of myself on occasion. This too was not entirely unexpected under the circumstances. It was an uncompromising, tough station with some rough and ready pupils. Some real characters, as they say in the trade. There was some great lads, genuine, funny, endearing, and others who were perhaps more, more imbued with a genuine air of devilment and menace. And then there were those who were like pitiful lost wee souls. At the full gambit, the complete deck, each one very different. There were also some who were perhaps not the full deck, if you know what I mean. It was an environment that was rich in humour, often deeply black in tone and deeply ironic. But there were some memorable laugh out loud moments. Mind you, Sometimes it was a case of, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. As a postgraduate teaching student, you're quite literally thrown in at the deep end. A shark-infested deep end in some cases. Or should that be piranha-infested? It was more of a relentless nibbling away at you rather than a singular catastrophic attack. Little but persistent incisions into your self-confidence and self-esteem. Unless you developed solid self-preservation mechanisms fairly quickly, you could be a goner. Many teachers who quit the profession do so in their first year. You know that, sweet Jesus, what have I got myself into here sort of feeling. When you realise you're out of your depth in the proverbial shit creek without a paddle, you need to be very determined and resourceful to get through this phase. Once you get through that initial pain barrier, it does get easier. Or so I was told. I likened it to pre-season training at my local football club. If you got through all the sadistic stuff in January and February, relentless circuit training and the like, it got easier in the later evenings and you knew that in hindsight it had prepared you well for the rigours that lay ahead. The Ballymena and District Premier League is not for the faint-hearted, I can tell you. I learned to deflect and diffuse with humour and a quick wit in the classroom. Sometimes, depending on the nature of of the school and the pupils in front of you, it may even have been necessary to veer onto the borderline of what was deemed accepted practice. Inflicting some very minor public humiliation and utilising an unrivaled ability to administer knockout put-downs or slagging formed a crucial part of my arsenal when dealing with disruptive and smart arse teenagers. Taking them down a peg or two in front of their peers does no harm at all as long as it's done in the appropriate way and you're in control of the situation. You also learn to choose your battles very carefully and as a politics and history teacher I could appreciate the historical military parallels. Teaching a crap class was a war of attrition, whereupon you would employ the age-old military strategies of divide and conquer, outflanking the enemy, 
using the element of surprise and employing reinforcements or even tactical retreats when necessary. I drew the line at chemical warfare, although pupils resort to this despicable tactic on a regular basis. Nothing can disrupt a class quite like a really audible and subsequently pungent fart. <laughs> Timed for maximum effect, of course. SBDs are the worst, silent but deadlies. If it's not audible, it's much harder to identify the culprit, obviously. Eradicating the smell can be a protracted process also. I've even known the smell to follow you out of the room, almost as if it clings to your clothes, embedding its foul stench in the very fabric of your otherwise smart-looking Marxist blazer. What the hell are they feeding these kids? It's like you've been hit with a double whammy because when you go to the staff room for your break, almost grateful for its more familiar tobacco-filled tobacco aroma, a colleague would inevitably ask, did you just let one go there? Jesus. For Christ's sake, there's no need for that. I'm trying to have my break here. Anyway, it was nearing the Christmas holidays, which is a particularly stressful time for teachers. Exams must be devised and organised, then meticulously marked and graded. Finally, reports are acerbically written, ready to be sent out to unwitting parents by early January. We're told to make school reports as positive as possible these days. You can't say things like, your son Johnny is a lazy, cheeky wee shite with a fucking attitude problem. <laughs> Someday, I might just succumb to the nagging little devil on my shoulder, urging me to employ such brutal honesty. There's also the added pressure of ensuring that your pupils don't feel miserably en masse, which would beg the inevitable question from our eloquent principal. Just what the fucking bejesus have you been doing with them all term? In fairness, you would probably have even used more unparliamentary language than that, but you, you get the sentiment. The entire class having the combined brain power of a turkey after a frontal lobotomy would be no excuse. So here I, am, here I was with 10E, Turkey Central. They had been studying the First World War topic for most of the term. We had spent the last fortnight on focused revision. That's basically where I tell them exactly what's going to be on the exam paper. We are 10 minutes into the exam and they're struggling big time. For some, I realize the concentration span doesn't stretch much beyond about five minutes, but this performance was poor, even by their usual meager standards. As I paced up and down the classroom, glancing at their vacuous answer sheets, I felt embarrassed and immensely disappointed. It was so infuriating. I wanted them to do well so badly, at least some of them, for God's sake. Not to assuage my own ego, you understand, but because I had grown to like the wee buggers on some level. I was actually thinking that it might be good for their self-confidence and they might actually get a buzz out of doing well and in that sense, I might actually have made some modicum of difference. There was also the feeling of sheer frustrating bemusement at the fact that they couldn't answer number 10. I mean, number 10. Come on, fellas, this one's a cinch. Question 10. The commander of the British Armed Forces at the beginning of World War I was Lord K... Dash, 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 R. That'll be Kitchener for those of you who zoned out during history back in the day. His name had been on the blackboard almost permanently for the entire term. For weeks. I even had the full-size print of the famous recruitment poster on the wall. You know the one, the Lord Kitchener wants you? 
The handlebar mustachioed general pointing an accusing finger at you, seeking you out and shaming you into joining the war effort. And no matter where you are in the room, he's still fucking pointing at you. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll join the bloody army then. Just stop fucking pointing at me. It's like the Mona Lisa thing, except it's his index finger and not the eyes. Anyway, they weren't getting it, and it was embarrassing. So I said, look, lads, I can't believe you're not even getting number 10. It's so easy, you'll kick yourselves. I'll tell you what, I'll give you, I'll give you a clue, so listen up. His name sounds like a room that you might have in your house. I looked around the room, expecting to witness the veritable upturned piggy bank of pennies dropping. But there was nothing. A sea of blankness and a shrugging of shoulders. Then, just as I was at the point of absolute despair, Big Aidan put his hand up to inquire. Sir, if I whisper the answer, tell you, will you spell it for me? I thought, thank you, Aidan, for restoring my faith in humanity. There is a chink of light at the end of this virtual academic void, after all. Gladly, I exclaimed. I rushed to where Aidan sat, at the rear of the classroom. I stooped to listen. Sir, is it cubbyhole? <laughs> whispered Aidan. Kind of whispered. In complete seriousness. Cubbyhole? Cubby fucking hole? Is he for real, I thought. Worse was to come. We Paddy at the next desk had overheard and immediately shouted to the rest of the class, Lads, number 10's cubbyhole! <laughs> and they all wrote it down. <laughs> Feverishly. Grateful, presumably. For the one answer they were guaranteed to get right. I didn't have the heart to disabuse them. And I marked them all correct for number 10. <laughs> Call it an early Christmas present. I learned not to expect too much from these exams. I was grateful to have made it to the end of the school term. I was also grateful to have made it to the end of my teaching placement. And most of all, grateful to have learned so much of the classroom craft on what was the steepest of learning curves. If these guys had a positive experience in your class and learned something, anything useful along the way, that was probably enough. Even if it wasn't the name of Lord Bloody Kitchener, he was a shite general anyway. Thanks, Virgo. They say one good teacher can change a life. Maybe you did. It was great to be back in front of a live audience, but it was also great to hear so many new voices when we were on Zoom and from so many different places, from the west coast of America to India and everywhere in between. Our next story comes from our Zoom period. It was June and we had teamed up with Columba Fest run by the Iona community in Scotland. Here's first-timer Leanne Cleland. So we're at that stage in our family life where parenting has morphed into personnel management. And that means that most days are spent driving a boy somewhere for something. These boys each have a different approach to car journeys. One thinks that the front seat is a soapbox upon which he will declare the injustices of not yet being a pro golfer due to the fact that his parents haven't built a putting green in the garden, installed a chipping net on the roof, 
and won't fly him to the World Golf Championships in South Carolina. He's eight. The oldest boy uses his time in the front to explain at length why the world is amazing and cruel, ununderstandable, fascinating and complex. And the other one doesn't talk at all usually, which is a relief because no one can deal with more than two gobshites in any family. But recently I was taking the quiet one to an interview at the School of Sport in Glasgow. Uh, he has dreamed of this interview for a year and getting to this stage in the process had taken all of us by surprise. So much so that we hadn't really prepared him for the interview and I certainly wasn't about to start cramming for it in the car. And he was quiet. It was hard to know in that moment if he was the sort of quiet which plots great comedy or certain doom. But I decided to break the silence with a story which I'm about to tell you. When I was 15, my dad, who would have been a year or two older than I am now, had a heart attack. So that really broke the mood in the car. He was still quiet, but he was alert. My sisters and I spent the next few months Tending to dad as he waited for news about surgery. We sat and cleared fires in the living room, lifted the shopping in from the car and tidied up after dinner. He rustled behind his daily newspaper. We crept about in deference to his dodgy heart. At around the same time, once a week after school, I would visit the home of an old couple who used to be missionaries in Spain. The old man, Mr McManus, was housebound and my visits meant that his wife could go and get the shopping in. I would arrive and she would totter off with her silver hair and tiny glasses and her wheelie shopper. And Mr McManus and I would talk about the days when he used to share the gospel to the Catholics in Spain. He had a terrible habit of unexpectedly falling asleep. And I would stare in panic at those papery cheeks, willing them to fill with air, unable to bear the embarrassment of having to tell his wife that he had died on my watch while she was buying the spuds. In the meantime, my school decided it was time for our year group to go and work experience. This normally meant that we landed ourselves in a local office for a week and did a bit of stapling and filing. I had chosen five languages at GCSE. And in those days, the only career option for a language student was to be a teacher. I had no notion of being a teacher. I had also worked in my dad's office for the odd summer. So stapling and filing held no thrill for me whatsoever. And in any case, in those days, no one on the continent wanted to trade with the troubled north of Ireland. So not for the first or the last time, I was a conundrum to my careers teacher. The McManus has suggested that I would go to Spain for work experience. I was to stay with a family they knew and pretend to be an English assistant in a school for a couple of weeks. And without hesitation, I agreed. Now in hindsight, this was a remarkable decision because I was a child who couldn't go to a sleepover without needing collected in the middle of the night. I used to go to an adventure camp in the next town so that when I was unbearably homesick, my mum could drive past reassuringly. 
But here it was. I was to go to Spain to live with strangers, speak faltering Spanish for a fortnight, and I couldn't be more excited. We continued to do the heavy lifting and the tea serving at home when news came of Dad's appointment. He was to have a triple bypass, which is an operation not without its risks in the 80s, during the time that I was due to be on my Spanish adventure. There was no discussion or hand-wringing or soul-searching that I can remember. He was off to get new tubes in. I was still going to Spain. Mum drove me to the airport and we probably didn't talk much on the way. At least Mum might have talked. I probably said very little, plotting either great comedy or a certain doom as we drove from Corey into Aldergrove. Now in those days, Ulster's International Airport was hidden away in the countryside, accessible only by two A roads, one from the north and one from the east. We had, like all good Northern Irish people, built in enough travel time for stopping at at least two army checkpoints. There was almost always one at the Frosses. So that's a great stretch of road which weaved in and out of sprawling fields and where dozens of dark trees bend themselves over the road to greet their leafy neighbours on the other side. And there was always a checkpoint at the airport. The soldier would wave you forward, lean in towards the car, bending over the gun which was slung across his chest, and would ask where you were off to. We were Protestants. It was like having a friend come to wave you off every time you left the island. I know that that's crazy talk, but they were crazy times. But as we approached the airport on this journey, a soldier waved us down to inform us that there was a suspected bomb on the road ahead. There is no risk to security at the airport, he said, but you can't take your car any further. So we were about half a mile from the airport door and I had a choice. I could either go home, forget about the trip to Spain, spend the fortnight pacing a sterile ward and waiting for my dad to get better, or I could grab the suitcase and run. The boy in the car beside me is still quiet, but when I glance to look at him, his eyes are out on stalks. I'm not sure what's going on in his head most of the time, but right now I'm pretty sure he's weighing up all the options. The heart surgery, the possible bomb, the going home, and the image of me running to the airport. And he's thinking, nah, there's no way she ran to the airport. And the skin around his eyes is crinkled up as he tries to see into his own future by listening hard to my past. And he squints and squirms as if perhaps to say, oh, dear God, if I have any sporting genes, let them not be from her. And he's right, of course I didn't run, but I did grab that suitcase and I didn't look back. What a brilliant story of determination, Leanne, and I hope we'll see you for real at Columba Fest next year. I do wonder if young people have any idea what it was like to live with regular bomb threats. Let's hope not. Now, 10 by 9 like many others, took a big financial hit over lockdown. The work we do to fund 10 by 9 dried up, 
so we've been running on empty. And while we keep our overheads low, we do have some outgoing, so you know what comes next. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to help support us on a monthly basis, or you can make a one-off donation via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, and we really mean this, you do support us just by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Thank you. Okay, on to our third and final story, and I was told at our October evening when the theme was shock. From my hometown of Derry, here's Eliza McCafferty. Like a bad night at the Telstar. That's what my grandfather would say at his singing classes when he'd hear tape recordings played back by mothers, making sure they got the recording of their children singing so they could practice for the fish. You'd hear a chorus of gorgeous voices singing away with my grandfather playing piano, calling out the lyrics and instructions while the mommies and grannies talked over each other out in the hall and kitchen, shouting goodbyes and arrangements, drowning the kids out. The Telstar is a bar in Derry, by the way, not the satellite. The soundtrack growing up is one of the reasons I think I felt so at home in the south of Italy. The chaotic noise of people shouting like they were arguing, but exchanging pleasantries, and the racket of mopeds and cars was an assault to the ears that I didn't mind. I was glad of this background noise when it hid my sobs at Rome Termini Station. I'd been teaching English in a language school in Naples for a few months, and had decided to come to Rome for a night. My fellow teacher and housemate had recommended a hostel he had stayed in and had marked out on his map where it was and how to get to it. I'd hopped on the Eurostar that morning, chuffed at how light I was travelling, so I could walk for miles without a heavy bag, so to see as much as I could. I'll never forget seeing the Colosseum appearing in front of me as I ascended the underground steps, coming to realise why there wasn't a sign for it at the metro stop. I was tickled at the sight of centurions sharing a coffee and a smoke at the Metro Cafe on a break from touting for photos with punters. I remember being underwhelmed by the Spanish steps but loving Piazza Navona. At the Palatine Gardens near the Vestal Virgins, I heard a voice shout after me, Signorina. When I turned, a man was running after me with my scarf I hadn't realised had blown off. I remember thinking it would be a good scene in a novel if I ever wrote one. By early evening, I was ready to turn into the hostel. I was getting tired from walking and wanted to put my feet up. I followed my housemate's instructions and got to the hostel no problem, but only to find they wouldn't let me stay without a passport. I had travelled too late. I was shocked at my own stupidity and didn't know what to do. The last train to Naples had left earlier that day. I phoned my housemate with a phone card from a payphone at the hostel asking him what to do, and then phoned home in tears, as if my parents and Derry could do anything about this, and I wasn't alarming them at all. It was the coldest day in Rome for 30 years. I caught this on headlines on newspaper stands and from snatches on the radio when I was in shops. There was snow on the tracks as my train pulled into the station that morning, and it was very windy. Trust me to be Rome alone on this Saturday of all Saturdays. I made my way back into Rome Termini, and I can't remember if it was my housemate who advised me to try the hotel reservations kiosk at the station, but the man there spotted me sobbing and asked me what was wrong. He was young enough and looked like Roy Scheider, with his jeans, retro trainers, a red t-shirt, black jacket and tight-cut hair. I explained listlessly I hadn't my passport with me and couldn't stay anywhere. I was so deflated and tired. He told me not to worry, 
that his friend had a hotel around the back of the station and that I could stay there without a passport for little cash. He'd ring him and let him know where I would pay his, and I would pay his friend at the hotel. He was adamant, and something about the way he said this to me, while fishing out a smoke from his breast pocket, let me trust him. The back of Rome Termini Station wasn't the classiest part of town, <laughs> and his friends was probably going to be best case scenario like Tom Conti and Shirley Valentine looking to kiss my stretch marks. If I had any, I was a fresh-faced 24-year-old. Or worst case scenario, well, let's not go there. But I had no choice. The reception area was bright, and I paid the man the agreed amount of cash and went upstairs to my room. It had no corners. There were smooth curves, and there was a small window high up, one wall with a glimpse of roofs and chimneys. There was no bathroom but a phone. I used my phone card to call my housemate and let him know where I was, and I rang home. Turns out the dairy room links are stronger than I thought, and my father had rung a, fan, a friend who sang with my grandfather's choir, a lovely lady who holidayed every year in the Irish college in Rome. She had given them the number for the college, and if I could make my way there, I wouldn't be stuck. I had sorted this room now, though, and I didn't want to make a nuisance of myself. I was terrified that night. I was afraid even to leave the room and go to the shared bathroom. I didn't want to be noticed, to be seen as a solo traveller. Thinking back, I don't know why I was so afraid. I was as exposed in Rome as I was in Naples, and the hostel would have had shared facilities like the bathroom. But maybe it was that lack of safety in numbers of others about a dorm that fed my fear. It might have also been down to the advice from the other staff in the school. On my first days in Italy, I noticed soft whistling sounds went out and about. It was like a person calling a cat. It took me a while to catch on. It was at me and other girls when walking past men in the street. I was no Marilyn Monroe. It happened to every female. When I asked some of my adult students about this, they said, we Italians appreciate beauty when we see it, and it is a good thing. Some of the ladies agreed, and some shrugged it away. I was conspicuous enough with a pasty face and had unfortunately dyed my hair bright red before leaving for Italy, as I got the phone call for the job at short notice. The whistling reached a resounding crescendo when my mother visited, and when we walked the main street to the train station. Gentlemen, well, these men preferred blondes. The headmistress advised me on my first week to get a band on my wedding finger as a deterrent against unwanted attention, and another female at the school said they all wore one as a potential pest, wouldn't know for sure who they were married to. Earlier that day in Rome, I had stood, stood still for a second to take a photo of the Pantheon, when a man in bad tracks at bottoms and a tatty raincoat and had flasher written all over him approached me. <laughs> but I darted away before I could see if he had flasher written all under him. <laughs> Maybe this preyed on my mind. There wasn't a sound in the hotel. It was so quiet. I eventually fell asleep and was awakened very early by a sonorous racket. Church bells were ringing all over Rome. Tinny ones, out of tune ones, loud bass ones. I was never more glad to be alive. And just like that scene in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, I would have flung open the window if I could reach it, and if it could open, and ask a passing boy if he knew that prize turkey was still in the poultry's window in the next street but one. <laughs> I ran round to the kiosk at the train station to thank the guy who had sorted the hotel for me, but he wasn't there. I thought I might catch him when I returned later from my train, but he was gone. I will always be grateful to this kind man who helped a stranger in distress, and who, like his friend, wasn't a predator after all. 
To the guy at the hotel reservations kiosk, grazie. Thanks so much, Eliza, for your Roman holiday story. I love that in the midst of a crisis in Italy, you still phoned home. Such a dairy thing to do. And you can see Eliza telling other stories when we were on Zoom on our YouTube channel. All our Zoom events are up there in bite-sized chunks. And that is it for this podcast. We love hearing from you. And you can stay in touch with us on social media, email, or via our website, tenbenign.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. I'm Paul Doerr and I'll be back with another one soon. For now though, bye-bye.